Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil e. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In November 2011, former President Barack Obama said, the decision to adopt the child has brought profound joy and meaning into the lives of Americans across our country. Parents are moved to adopt for reasons as unique and varied as the children they embrace, but they are unified by the remarkable grace of their acts. I think most people would agree, adoption can be a noble act of love and caring, but the decision to adopt doesn't begin or end with the adoptive parents. And we don't often hear enough from adult adoptees about their experience. So when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, ending the constitutional right to an abortion, conversations about adoption as an alternative began to proliferate online. But is it that simple? What is the state of adoption in Tennessee right now? What is that like for people looking to adopt? Is the state prepared for a potential uptick in adoption and foster care requests? That's coming up later this hour. But first, early voting for the primaries starts this Friday. Today, we're going to round up all the state house races to watch this election with WPLN's afternoon news editor, Julia Ritchie, and senior editor, Chaz Sisk. Thanks to you both for joining us. How's it going? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, Julia, we'll start with you. People may not know this since you're newer to the station, but you've covered state government for years. Why are state house races so important? So politicians are famous for saying every election is the most important election of your lifetime. And so I think people get a little bit worn down by hearing that. But I'm an evangelist about state house races. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Everything from driving a car to opening a business to making sure the person cleaning the earwax out of your ears is properly certified puts you in contact with state law. These people have a lot of control over the things that you do in your daily lives, perhaps more so than some federal laws. So it's important to know who these people are and what decisions they're making on your behalf. And it's especially important now, uh, as we've seen since the Supreme Court uh, has kicked Roe v. Wade uh, uh, protections away and has kicked it back to the state to to decide on abortion regulations. These are the people that are actually going to be deciding whether or not you have access to reproductive services, among many other decisions that are coming, trickling back down to the state level. So this supports the adage of all politics is local. For sure. So there's already been some intrigue around one race, and it's right here in Nashville. Earlier this year, Democratic State Senator Brenda Gilmore announced her retirement and that triggered something called the state's anti-skulldudgery law. Chaz, can you explain what happened? Yeah, I will do my best. I mean, this is a complicated one. Uh, so what happened was Brenda Gilmore withdrew from the race right at the filing deadline, almost the last minute to take her name off of the ballot. And that left just one candidate in the race, which was Keita Haynes, who is a former public defender who's been very active in politics through the years. Uh, there was some worry that there was a fix-in on this, that, there was, mm. that they'd worked this out between the two of them. Um, um, and so the the two of them, of course, insisted that there was no uh, nothing planned in advance or anything uh, afoot there. But there has been some history of this in Tennessee, where a candidate might uh, decide at the last minute to pull out and try to pass the office off over to a, an heir apparent. So back in the 90s, the state uh, passed something called the anti-skull dudgery law. 
And what it says is that if someone withdraws at the last minute, then uh, the uh, filing deadline is opened back up and people have another chance to get on the ballot. So now we have a wide open race. Keita Haynes has uh, decided not to run for the office because of all the questions that are around it. And we've got a lot of the candidates that are new candidates that are on this ballot. Okay, we'll see what happens. And I just like saying skullduggery. I thought it was skullduggery. I'm learning something. Potato, right? (laughs) That's right. Either way, it's foul. Uh, In fact, that there there are five Democrats on the ballot in Gilmore's old Senate district, which is District 19. Tell us a little bit more about them. Yeah, I mean, District 19, this is a Nashville-based district, and so a lot of the candidates that uh, are on this are Nashville-based candidates, people that you might know if you've been following local politics for a while. Uh, There's two Metro Council members that are former Metro Council members that are on the ballot. That's uh, Jerry Maynard and Ludy Wallace. Uh, Wallace is uh, has gone on to become the president of the local NAACP. It's been about 15 years since he was on the council. And then uh, he also waited a run for mayor a few years back. And then uh, Jerry Maynard, is, uh, he left office about six years ago or so, and uh, he's been working as a government relations consultant. So you've got two people who've been on the Metro Council that are in this race. Uh, and then you've got uh, Charlene Oliver, who's the co-founder of the Equity Alliance, which is a very active um, political group here in Tennessee, It's especially in Nashville, that's been gaining some, um, gaining some momentum in, in recent years. She has the endorsement of former Mayor Megan Barry, so she uh, would be, I think, new to uh, politics, uh, as but is still getting some momentum behind her. And then you've got a couple other people, Barry Barlow, who has uh, run for some local offices without any success, and another man named Rossi Turner. So big ballot. Um, you never really know how a long ballot like that will go. You have to think that Charlene Oliver and Maynard and, and Wallace would be the front runners, but you never know when there's a lot of people to choose from how it'll all shake out. So it could be a really interesting race to, to follow this year. Okay. Over in the House, there's another interesting race in the Democratic primary. Justin Jones, who is a well-known political activist, is taking on Delicia Porterfield, a Metro Council member. Julia, what can you tell us about those candidates? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is going to be a battle of the progressives. Um, this is something that we've seen kind of like as a national trend and it's like playing out here locally, which is where uh, a more establishment Democrat who is uh, Mike Stewart, he's been in that seat since like 2008, I think, uh, really low key kind of guy stepping aside, says he might run again one day. And now you have these two candidates who are most likely to the left of him and policy and, and issues like that. So Justin Jones, as you mentioned, he, uh, really outspoken um, about uh, police brutality, led those uh, really widespread protests after the murder of George Floyd. Um, so this is sort of like his first real run for office. Mm-hmm. Um, he did challenge Jim Cooper, but dropped out before uh, running in uh, an election cycle. Or two. two years ago. Yes, yeah, two right. years ago. So mm-hmm. this is like his first like real like entry into politics. Okay. Delicia Portfield also progressive bony fides are really high up there. She uh, was uh, the chair of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, she showed up to those recent protests after Roe v. Wade was struck down um, and has also backed Odessa Kelly, another progressive candidate running in the a congressional race, District 7. So this is going to be a race to watch. Okay. And I think one thing about Justin Jones, at one point banned from the state capitol um, for his activities, <laughs> political activism there. So it'd be interesting if he were to, to win, to, to be representing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That dynamic would be very interesting. Now, the Republicans are firmly in control of the state legislature, and they have a lot of incumbents who are 
expected to win easily. But Chaz, what race on the GOP side are you watching most closely? Yeah, the one I'm, I'm really uh, most intrigued by is House District 63, which is in Williamson County. Uh, this is Glenn Cassida's old district, uh, mm. an old foil of Justin Jones um, when he was the Speaker of the House. And, uh, you know, Glenn Cassida is leaving politics after uh, two decades uh, at the legislature. And so... Um, you know, this has become this is another one of these open seats here where there's a lot of uh, a lot of candidates in it. There's there's three candidates in this particular race. Um, the best known is uh, Lori Cardoza Moore. Um, if you've been around Tennessee politics uh, in recent years, uh, you would probably have heard her name before. Um, going back to like 20, 2009, 2010, she first came to prominence for trying to block construction of the mosque in Murfreesboro. Um, a very uh, anti, uh, anti-Muslim anti uh, poster on social media, a very prolific poster on social media, a, a frequent critic of Black Lives Matter, a, a critic of vaccines. Um, recently was named to the State Textbook Commission as mm. uh, someone who is uh, helping to oversee what goes into textbooks um, in, 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 in our schools. Um, you know, she's a, a lightning rod figure. And I think the real question for this is uh, whether all of that is in line with Williamson County voters or if she's seen as too extreme. Um, and also, I think it's a question of like whether either of the other two candidates in this race, whether either of them break out as the person to, to, to be the alternative for her. Um, those, those two people are Jake McCalman and James Sloan. Uh, I, I don't think either of them have ever uh, held elected office before. So some newcomers to this. So um, yeah, really interesting race. And I think it's going to say a lot about sort of where Williamson County voters are right now. Now, we've talked a lot about individual races, but one of the big stories this year is a pin about gerrymandering, and that includes the state legislature over in Knox County. We saw a very vocal Democrat on the verge of being drawn out of the state legislature, Gloria Johnson. Julia, what happened here? So Representative Gloria Johnson um, has, yeah, always been a thorn in the side of Republican leadership in the state house. So this is not the first time they've kind of like gone after her. But every 10 years, we count the number of people in the United States and then uh, state lawmakers take that number and they redraw maps and political boundaries based on that. And more frequently, they've been drawing the lines to favor incumbents. And so in this case, uh, they drew her out of her district or they placed her in a district rather with uh, where she would have to run against a black incumbent, um, mm. Sam McKenzie. And uh, she basically said, like, I would rather move than have to run against basically East Tennessee's only black representative. So um, she is, she actually did that. She moved and now she's running in what is now District 90. That district, by the way, used to be all the way in Memphis, but now District 90 is in East Tennessee. So wow. you can, you know, there's, this is an example of the dosi doing that Democrats have had to do in order to not only retain their seats, um, but, you know, not unseat other members of their own party. Okay, let's hear what Representative Johnson had to say about staying on the ballot. And I have long time said I will not run in House District 15. I won't run against Sam, and I won't run in House District 15. Historically, since I've been in politics, that's been uh, at a m- minority seat, and there's no way that I would try to change that. You know, I'm not going to get rid of our furthest east minority member. You know, I'm, I, I think us running against each other would be ridiculous. And, you know, I'm just not going to do that. So on the topic of redistricting, um, 
Challenges against the maps aren't over yet. Julia, what's the latest on these court challenges? Yeah, I just called the chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party this morning to make sure I had the most recent in- info on this. So his name's Hindrell Remus, but he um, is, is on this lawsuit with three other voters. So basically, once the maps came out, three voters st- sued the state and uh, House and Senate maps. Um, and a three-court panel said, hey, you need to redraw these lines. State Supreme Court got involved and said, no, no, that's too much chaos for this election cycle. So the lines that they redrew are in place for this August primary and in, in, in November. Um, and uh, the, But the Supreme Court ruled that the three-panel court will have to uh, review that case again next April. So uh, there's still court challenges going on, but it's going to be playing out after this election cycle. So potentially next year we could have new districts as well. If they make them redraw some of the lines. So District 90 will move from Memphis (laughs) to East to to North Tennessee. Exactly. All right. Yeah. All right. WPLN Afternoon Editor Julia Ritchie and Senior Editor Chad Sisk. Thanks for this breakdown. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. We have to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk with adult adoptees and prospective parents to hear their views on adoption and its emergence as a supposed substitute for abortion. Tweet us your thoughts at This Is Nashville. We know you got them. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, adoption has come up in debates around abortion. That's because many anti-abortion advocates have been appointed to adoption as an alternative to abortion. A photo recently went viral showing a couple with a sign that reads, we will adopt your baby. But some adoptees have pushed back against this narrative to get a better sense of the experience of adoption from the perspective of adoptees. I'd like to introduce my first guests, Jennifer Harbin and Janelle Krakis. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks to you both for being here. Thanks so much. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Let's, Let's start with your reactions to this idea that adoption is a substitute for abortion. Jen, as an adoptee, what did you think as this conversation started to unfold? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. So, you know, I I don't think of adoption as any kind of substitution for abortion because it's honestly just much more complex than finding homes for, for children who need them. Janelle, how about you? Uh, I'm actually in the same boat. Um, both adoption and, and life are, are beautiful gifts, but I don't think that um, adoptees' voices should be taken away. Um, and I don't think that it's, it's a, it shouldn't be used as an excuse for a substitute. For now, in preparing for this show, our senior producer, Steve Harouche, spoke to another adoptee, Angela Tucker, who wasn't able to join us today. She's the founder of the Adoptee Mentoring Society. She was born in Chattanooga and adopted as an infant by a family all the way across the country in Washington state. Here's her reaction to the narrative that's emerged recently. In an adoptee perspective, it is so clear that we are commodities for sale when people 
hold up signs that say we will adopt your baby because typically what they're also saying is we will adopt a white healthy baby and so then that harkens back to the baby scoop era which is really what happened then that people were not interested in adopting all of the kids and we that we see that still today that there's a waiting list at most agencies for a domestic infant white healthy baby <laughs> and that recipe shouldn't be the most common thing in adoption because if for adoptions to really need to take place it must mean that there is actual complexity, tragedy, trauma. And that comes often getting back to the policies of America from people who are oppressed. And so we will adopt your white healthy baby really means I wanna go shopping and I want you to be a surrogate. And we, we heard Angela's use the phrase commodities for sale. That's, that's pretty strong language. Jen, what does what Angela said, does that resonate with you? Uh, yes, in, in some ways, because I think um, people look at adoption sometimes in a very binary way, um, and they it, it almost as if the adoptee is deduced to this, um, like as Angela said, as, as this commodity that can just be, um, you know, taken into a home and raised and, and everything's fixed and, and perfect. Um, and the systems in place, I think, to um, at least historically for adoption have, I think, kind of created the conditions to um, for for oftentimes, at least in, in my experience, specifically with the adoption um, from South Korea, um, there's a lot of negative um, impact that has been created as a result of of these adoptions and, and these somewhat, you know, you could say sales taking place between um, two countries and between people and, and these adoptees. So yes, it does resonate. Janelle? No, I agree. Um, that definitely, um, for my personal journey, I don't feel like that resonated, but I did actually see the picture floating around social media and just seeing that um, absolutely <laughs> broke my heart because um, I, I was adopted as a biracial child um, into an all-white family and kind of painting this like beautiful like sales pitch for adoption. Um, people just think that it the issue is just one one way. And there's so many complexities that come with adoption, um, especially when you have um, children, African-American children, biracial children, children from other um, places. And it's, it's like people just overlook that and it becomes, and it, and it just, it starts to get tricky. So I, that definitely resonated with me. I mean, you both alluded to this. I mean, Angela Tucker, who we just heard from, she's black and she was adopted by a white family. And when she was talking to our senior producer, Steve Shuru, she was telling him that it was a huge struggle for her growing up. Now, seeing that you both faced similar challenges, Janelle, tell us a little bit more in detail about what that was like for you. No, it was definitely a challenge for me. Um, I am uh, super curly hair, brown eyed, and um, my adoptive brother and sister are 
blonde haired, blue eyes. And so there was never any question whenever we went somewhere that um, I kind of stood out. And I actually was just able to get a hold of my um, biological father three years ago and begin building a relationship with my black family mm. and starting to learn that at 29 years of age it comes with like so much just it's like all the trauma just like washes over you and trying to like sort through that and kind of sort through your has been like such a challenge and a blessing for me, really. So, yeah, Jen. How about you? Uh, similar feelings. So uh, I was adopted from South Korea and raised um, my family, who, who I love dearly too, just wanted to point that out. But uh, they're, they're white. I was raised in Louisiana. Um, and it was very challenging. And I, I never really talked about race with my family. They also, I don't feel, were prepared to have these conversations um, because the, you know, my adoption agency told them to essentially assimilate, you know, have me assimilate me into their family as much as possible. Don't make me feel any different, right? Like see me as their child. But in reality, the challenge with that is like, I'm a different race and the world is going to treat me differently, regardless of whether or not you love me. So, um, I think that people kind of, uh, you know, look, overlook this very important distinction um, when you're, when you have a transracial adoption, um, in place. So now as you've gone, come into adulthood, have you had these conversations with your parents and your family? I have. Yes. Um, it honestly, not until, uh, until recently, a couple of uh, years ago, I, I went back to South Korea and all of these feelings that, and, uh, I had somewhat suppressed, honestly, as a growing up as, as a kid, um, started to come back up. And so I needed to address this and with the, um, you know, the things that happened uh, over the course of the past two years, um, it's it's brought a lot of these conversations to light. And it, it's been really, um, you know, as Janelle mentioned, it really has been a blessing in a way because I have kind of been able to develop my own perspectives and kind of come into my own as an Asian American um, which I, I really never felt growing up and, and having these conversations with my parents as an adult has been very healing in, in a good way, now, but Je it wasn't until, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Janelle, yeah. you, you mentioned that you met your biological father. Have you had these conversations with your adoptive parents? Um, yes, I have actually, we are very open. I will be the first to say that I have been, um, absolutely blessed with an amazing, amazing adoptive family. I mean, I, I, I never felt, even though I felt extremely out of place, I never really felt out of place, if that makes sense. And they have been supportive, um, of me on this journey. We actually all went down to, um, North Carolina three years ago, and we all met my biological father together and, um, mm. they've just been extremely supportive and, um, we are able to have transparent conversations. They've always been transparent with me about, um, my background and where I've come from. So, so yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kalia Lekalona. We're talking this hour about adoption, a topic that's been in the news a lot more recently because of the Supreme Court's decision to eliminate the constitutional right to abortion. My next guest is one of the many people here in Tennessee looking to become an adoptive parent. Jacob Grambrell 
Welcome to This is Nashville. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, I understand that you and your partner have been thinking about adopting for a while. Tell me, what has that process been like for you? Yeah, um, so about a year ago now, um, my partner had an ectopic pregnancy um, and a miscarriage. And after just um, a lot of the trauma and um, physical and emotional after that, we kind of decided if we're going to expand our family, we're going to do it through adoption. Um, we already have a three-year-old. Um, and so, you know, for probably since last fall, we've been slowly trying to figure out <laughs> um, what what the heck that looks like. And uh, it has it has really been a challenge to navigate all the different um, adoption agencies in town, figure out which ones are reputable, which ones we can trust. What's been the most difficult part for you and your partner? <clears throat> just, I mean, just taking that first step, I think, is really is deciding, okay, this is the agency we're going to use. We're going to have them come do the home visit. We're going to um, set, because it's just um, so much information. There's not really any kind of, um, any kind of regulatory agency. <laughs> mm look up and see, oh, okay, this place is a trustworthy, reputable place. Um, and, you know, that's, so yeah, I think that's been the hardest part is just navigating all the PDFs that people email you and figure out which one would be the right fit for us. Now, earlier you made the reference to an ectopic pregnancy, seeing how abortion has become kind of intertwined with mm -hmm. adoption. Um, I wonder, did the Supreme Court decision affect your thinking at all? Um, if anything, it just kind of solidified, right? If, you know, if my partner, if she was 95% sure that she uh, didn't want to have another child biologically, now she's, you know, 99%. Because hmm. the last thing you'd want to happen is for us to go through what we did last summer and also have a criminal investigation to make sure that everything was above board. I don't exactly know all of the, the laws in Tennessee um, with Roe being overturned, um, but I do know, you know, that line between miscarriage and abortion can be pretty blurry at times, especially legally. After hearing Jen and Janelle talk about their experiences, what questions do you have for them as someone who might be an adoptive parent someday? Um... Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for them sharing their story. And I think that's something that I've definitely wrestled with um, as, as a white person, right? Uh, my partner is also white, is, um, you know, how, how do you do this ethically and justly? Um, and, you know, there's, if, if we were to adopt a child of color, right, you know, making sure that we don't just assimilate them. Um, and we do um, engage in the community and find ways of um, making sure that they don't lose that part of themselves while also making sure that they're fully integrated in the part of our family. Um, so yeah, I guess just a question would be, <laughs> how do you do that, right? That's, that's way too broad and vague, but um, Maybe if y'all have any stories, um, both of y'all have talked positively of your adopted family. Do you have any stories or memories of things that your parents did 
um, through the transracial adoption that you were like, wow, that was really important that they did that. I do actually have a little bit of a funny story to tell. Um, so as a biracial child, um, my parents did not know how to do my hair growing up. And I actually uh, grew up in Tennessee. I'm in the DC area now. Um, I was in Knoxville and my mom, we had to get my hair cut. And so we went into, um, I think it was like a hair cuttery or something like that. And my mom asked the lady, do you all have anyone who knows biracial hair? And the lady was um, like, oh, like we don't discriminate. Like everybody here knows how to do hair the same. Hmm. And my mom was a little bit worried, but we went forward with a haircut and I'll just say it was an absolute disaster. But that always stood out. Um, to me, even to this day, because my mom really tried her hardest to make sure I had all the resources in place to understand who I was as a biracial child, if that makes sense. Jen? Uh, yeah, I, you know, my family has been really great in supporting my decision when I moved to, to South Korea to really explore um, myself in terms of like where I came from. And also I, I did a birth family search as well. And just the fact that I felt the support of my parents in doing that was really meaningful because not, not all adoptees that I've, I've met with before have that kind of support. I think it, it's hard sometimes on the adoptive parents, which, which I can understand as well, but just, just having the support to um, explore that part of, of who I am, my, my identity, that pre-adoption life before me, I think that's that's really been a meaningful part of our relationship with my adoptive parents. You know, Angela Tucker, who we heard earlier, said in some cases she would recommend even moving to a more diverse area. You know, Jacob, would you be open to that? Um, for sure. Uh, we, we live in Woodbine, um, and so the school district we're zoned for, elementary school, is already... Um, fairly diverse, um, definitely more diverse than the school I grew up in. Um, but yeah, that would definitely be something that we would be willing to do in order to give our child that, um, that cultural connection and that community um, that we couldn't always provide them. You know, I think a lot of our society's ideas about adoption begin and end with a child was adopted. Now everyone is living happily ever after, but it's a lot more than that, right? Janelle, what are you, what are we missing when we talk about adoption? Well, I think, I guess it depends on each individual story. So I think a lot of times um, when people do talk about adoption, it is, um, it's just, oh, it's, they lived happily ever after. And um, that's, that is not the case. I have not had the easiest easiest time as an adopted child. And there is definitely um, deep trauma that I've had to work through. Um, we, a lot of people don't talk about um, when babies are um, growing inside their mother's wombs, they form an attachment even in the mother's wombs. And even though you're, you're born and then um, you know, you're ripped away from that, even though you're a baby and you can't remember it, like memory wise, you can remember that in your, and it's embedded in your DNA as trauma. 
And I don't think people talk about how challenging it is to not truly know where you came from. Um, and it's so often just swept under the rug. It's like, oh, well, at least your mom chose life. And it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. There's more to the story than that. Mm. Jen, what do you want people to understand about adoption? I, I would like people to understand like the bigger picture of adoption in terms of looking at the circumstances that create these conditions for the need for adoption. Um, it's more than it's it's more than just uh, you know a family is looking to adopt a child or, or a child needs a home. There are often sometimes circumstances like people are unable to. Um, to care for children or they don't have the parental support or health insurance or there's um, in my case there's there's war you know I think I think it's important for people to look at adoption as um, you know within the system of it and what creates these conditions for the need versus just trying to look at it as a solution to something yeah what you're saying resonates to me considering the pandemic has uh, mm -hmm. created a good number of young people who are in the need of adoption. I wanna thank my guests. I wanna thank you both, Jennifer Harbin and Janelle Krakis. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing part of your stories. Jacob is gonna hang with us through the break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the process of adoption and explore the history of adoption and foster care in the state. What are your thoughts about adoption being touted as an alternative to abortion? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Lekolona, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we were talking with adult adoptees about their experiences and their views on adoption as an alternative to abortion. Now, we want to get a sense of the current state of abortion here in Tennessee and what changes we might expect, given that a near total ban of abortions is imminent. According to DCS records, there were about 1,200 adoptions in 2021, and 36 of those were finalized in Davidson County. To talk more about this, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Laura Troop is with Agape, a Christian organizer or organization pardon me, that offers a variety of services, including adoption, maternity counseling, and Jeremy Harrell, founder of Adoption, The Adoption Project. Thanks to you both for joining us today. Laura, let me ask, what kind of services do you offer at Agape around adoption specifically? Well, our agency focuses on counseling with women who plan to carry a child to term. So our counseling is more of a, a, a plan. So working with the birth mother to determine if she is, has the ability to parent or if she plans to place her child with the family. So the counseling is more of a, a guiding um, and a, an option seeking for the birth mother. So when someone comes to you and is considering putting their child up for adoption, what does that process look like? Well, um, often mothers don't seek our services until they're pretty far down the road. Um, around six to eight months is 
months um, gestation is when we typically see birth mothers come in and make a plan. And that could happen for a variety of reasons, but mostly my uh, my guess in that area is because they're kind of putting off having to make a decision. Um, so the work happens um, when they come in and say, what are my options? Um, if I place a child for adoption, do I get to choose? Um, and then our, our specialists here help work with understanding the legal process, understanding that this is a lifelong decision, um, and they talk about their options. They also help them budget and help them understand birth father rights and responsibilities. Now, tell me a little bit about an adoption plan. What is the adoption plans you all design? Well, um, that's customized to the birth mother. If the birth mother comes in and she wants to have an open adoption, most uh, most adoptions in the state of Tennessee are, are open. Um, and that's sometimes really a great, a great option for the family. Can, can you um, define that for our listeners real quick? What is an open adoption? That's where the birth mother would have ongoing contact with the adoptive family. And that would have to be mutually agreed upon, obviously. Um, but but that that is definitely an option. I think some, it puts a little bit uh, of ease on birth mother. It, it relieves some of the, the pressure along the way. How does that, in your experience, how does that change the dynamic of adoptions and how they how they work out? Well, you know, I, I don't have ongoing data on how how many of our birth mothers maintain contact. Some of them, some of them may want an open adoption or want to be contacted later down the road, um, but may, may not necessarily stick around. So um, many times that, that make that contact isn't maintained by the birth or the, by the birth mother. Um, however, it can allow the child, the adoptee to have future contact, to understand uh, more about who they are and have uh, a better self-identity as yeah. they continue their life with their adoptive family. Yeah, it resonates with me, particularly with what our previous guests just said. Now, Jeremy, what's your approach at the Adoption Project? So the Adoption Project is a policy-based organization. Uh, and what we're looking at is the state laws around adoption and how the process works uh, and what changes really need to be made. And just foundationally where that came from is we have my wife and I, we have three children, two of whom are adopted, our youngest two. And uh, just our experience working through that and kind of my, I have a background in uh, public service and policy. And uh, in that kind of adoption that we went through, what I learned from that is when you're dealing with uh, particularly domestic adoption and if both parties live in Tennessee, right, the baby is born in Tennessee and the, the prospective adoptive parents are in Tennessee, well, that's virtually completely governed by state law. Every state is different. And so there's no real consistency as you as you look around the country, which is uh, somewhat problematic uh, when you're going going through your experience. So how can we uh, look at what other states do, uh, which states do it the best? Does any state, does any state do it best? What should those policies really uh, ultimately be? And then how do we advocate for that? Uh, those legislative changes that would be necessary. Now, how long does the process typically take of adoption? <laughs> Forever. Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me. So I, I'll just tell you in, in our experience with our, our oldest daughter, 
from the time we started our home study to the time our adoption was finalized in court was about three years. We have wow. we have friends who have waited significantly less time and friends who have waited significantly longer. What are some of the issues with the timeline taking three years? Yeah, I, I think some part of it is um, the 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 way. Well, there are a variety of things. But the the longest piece that really could be most affected is uh, how long it takes to finalize once a placement has actually been made in Tennessee. That's six months. Some states can can get that done shorter. I mean, uh, frankly, the the longest piece of the time uh, of it is um, when a, a child who is being placed for adoption gets matched to a prospective adoptive parent. Right? The 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 parent who is placing the child picks the family, chooses the family to raise it and getting chosen as the family to raise. That's the longest piece of the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, not a lot that you can can do about it, nor nor I'm not sure a lot that that we should uh, do about that, because it kind of comes down to this question of does that you've talked around a little bit. Does the adoption system exist to find children for families or does it exist to find families for children? Mm. Right. I, I, I would pretty strongly uh, advocate for the second, right? It exists to find families for children who need families. And so uh, from our perspective, it's it's not about more, more adoptions for the sake of adoption's sake. No, it's about finding it the is, right the, the right the right placements and really, you know, improving and helping the lives of these children. Let me ask you, how does this, how does this, this, this three year wait, given the considerations to making sure that the children are in the right places, how does this wait complicate the narrative of adoption as an alternative to abortion? The, the, The most common question that I have been asked as it relates to that is, well, do you think there will be more adoptions as a result of uh, this decision? I'm not one who will tell you, yes, I, I do absolutely think that. I don't know the answer to that question. And I don't believe that anybody can know the answer to that question because it's so new. Right? We don't know what ultimately uh, this will look like. In, in Tennessee, the Department of Children's Services aims to reunify families as often as possible, even if children need to be mm-hmm. in foster care for a short while until their parents can properly take care of them. We reached out to DCS for this show. Here's Director of Communications, Sarah Brandon. You know, a lot of times people think children come into foster care and, you know, their parents have terminated their rights and then the state's taking care of them when that's not necessarily the case in every situation. Sometimes parents just need assistance and help in helping to care for their kids. Um, and so we, we a lot of foster parents, um, you know, some of them will work with the birth parents and still have communication and provide support and help the birth parents get back on their feet. Okay, so keeping families together may be the goal, but that's not always possible. When parents fully relinquish their rights to their child, that child is eligible for adoption. Laura, has Agape had to shift its focus more towards foster care? Absolutely, we have. Um, when Agape was founded, um, it it was more of uh, a meeting a need of helping quote unquote unwed mothers because that there was no stigma attached to being um, being pregnant but not married. I mean, there was stigma attached to that. So many women would place their children um, at that point. Now, do- adoptions have significantly decreased. 
Um, but foster care is significantly increased. And when children come into care, um, we want to to support um, Agape's mission is to strengthen children and families with the healing love of Christ. So we want to work with our foster families and foster families know that the goal is reunification because that's what's best for the child. If we can strengthen the family unit, um, we take the children for a temporary amount of time and um, and work with the the child and work with the birth parent so that they can come back together in a healthy way. So we've seen a lot more, um, a lot more foster care um, through our agency in the last several years. And many adoptions do happen through foster care. Uh, I think probably I would estimate 70% or more of the adoptions in Tennessee last year were through foster care. So when parental rights are terminated, uh, the foster family that's caring for them can petition to adopt that child. Jacob Gambrell is still with us. Now, Jacob, does this complicate things for you all, knowing that reunification is the goal and that a potential foster or adoptive parent, as a potential foster or adoptive parent, you might get caught in the middle of that process? Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's been on my mind a lot through this process is um, just, just the heartbreak, right, of, um, you know, I, from friends who've gone through similar processes I've heard, you know, they think, oh, this is finally going through. Um, this this child I've been caring for for so long is now finally going to be part of our family. And then something else happens. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what the state prioritizes. I would say, I think family is a lot more than just where your genes came from. Um, I'm, I'm a person of faith. You, you read what um, Jesus says about, you know, immediate nuclear families is sometimes you can find found family and different sources of family that are actually better for a child or better for a person. Um, but of course, you know, um, currently the state prioritizes reunification, which is, is fine. And that's good. I just, um, yeah. And so that's, that's definitely something that I've thought about and has, um, kind of weighed heavily as we kind of weigh our, <laughs> all the plethora of options that are, before us in this process. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking about adoption and foster care with Jeremy Harrell of The Adoption Project, Laura Troop of Agape, and prospective adoptive parent, Jacob Gambrell. Earlier in the show, we talked about the conversation surrounding adoption being highlighted due to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. This has many people speculating that there will be a rise in the number of children in need of adoption and foster care. As of now, according to DCS, there are already 400 kids in Tennessee in need of adoption. Laura, has is your organization expecting to see that number increase? I think that's to be seen. Um, I do believe that our agency will see an increase in children being placed Um However, many adoptions now are happening directly through attorneys. Um, we, we at Agape want to focus on family preservation, and we offer therapy to families who are adopting, families who have placed children for adoption, and families who uh, are children who have been adopted um, through their adulthood, which family preservation is what we focus on here, right? So uh, even if we don't increase the number of women who uh, plan to place through us, we want to be wrapping around the family, around the women who 
find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy situation. What type of preparations are you all making? Um, I, I think our work really does not change. Uh, what we've been doing for years is what we will continue to do, which is which is assist with the legal process, help women understand what their options are, help them know how to be successful as a parent if they do plan to keep their child, um, how to budget, how to find housing. Housing is a huge challenge in our area for women who are facing an unplanned pregnancy. And so what we want to do is, um, you know, help them understand what their options are and help them find a community community to rally around them. And the church and our faith-based agency have to continue to rally around people in vulnerable populations now and forever. We got a tweet from Britannia White Wolf at This Is Nashville saying, people assume that adoption is the easy answer. As a disabled woman, I can be denied the chance to foster or adopt strictly because I'm disabled, even though I have an able partner willing to make a safe and loving home for a child with me. You know, Jeremy, is this an area that you all think about that you think potentially could be addressed in policy? Yeah, well, uh, first, um, I, I agree with this statement that adoption is is not the easy. It's not easy for anybody. It's not easy for the that parent who's given birth and making a really tough decision. It's not easy for the child who is um, losing the closest first connection that it ever had. And it's not easy for the adoptive parents who are going through this system and they're waiting and, and, and dealing. It's not easy for anybody uh, involved. Um, I don't know enough about the specific situation in terms of uh, a disability preventing someone from being able to uh, be a part of the foster care system. And without knowing what the specific disability is here, uh, I do believe they'd probably be able to adopt through the the private system uh, as long as the home study is uh, is approved. Now, you know, but yes. It's in short answer to your question, yes. Now, our, our state has had real challenges in the past when it comes to our foster care system, so much so that it ended up in federal court. Ira Lusbader of the nonprofit Children's Rights was the lead attorney on that case, Brian A. versus Haslam, which was filed in 2000. We caught up with him yesterday, and here's what he said about the state's foster care system at the time. I think it, it was really one of the, the most shockingly dysfunctional systems that we had seen. And I think the state recognize and acknowledge that. Now, it took 17 years for the state to come into compliance with the consent decree, and things have improved, admittedly. But we, sorry, we are totally out of time. I apologize for this. We want to thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for giving your perspectives. That is, we had prospective adoptive parent Jacob Gambrell. He was joined by Laura Troop of Agape and Jeremy Harrell from the Adoption Project. Thank you all for joining us today. Hopefully we can pick this show up in the future. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, everyone in town is talking about affordable housing. But what is it exactly? Join us for a breakdown. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. 
This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.